no helicopters have been procured for me to go to golf course. Thank you. I never said he wasn't a great politician. I'm just saying he's a off. How'd you play out there today? Uh, well, I found the conditions challenging. Mostly because there's no grass on the golf course. But there never has been. I'm thinking about the swag bag. And I high hopes for the swag bag. Shrek, when you got three crevices on the green, your course is trash. What is happening, folks? Welcome back. Beltway Golfer Podcast, episode 39. Alex Dixon here. Been a few weeks off since our last podcast, but uh, I think this one's worth it. Ever since I've started, I've had a list of names of people that I'd love to have on the show. That list has grown and grown. I think right now I've got 50, 60, 70 names of people that either I've already reached out to, I want to reach out to, but I think it would be great to have on the show to kind of expand the breadth of who's been on the show, but but still staying with the theme of, of interesting people within the golf world or have impacted the golf world specifically around the Washington, D.C. area or stretching out a little bit into the Mid-Atlantic. On my list of, of, of people that I have on the show, Dean Beeman, quite frankly, was 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 down the road. Uh, you know, he's he's the only member of the World Golf Hall of Fame from the Washington, D.C. area. Um, he is a former PGA Tour commissioner for over 20 years, um, but he's also getting up in age. You know, he's 83 years old. So, what actually prompted uh, me to reach out to him was he got elected into the Montgomery County, Maryland Sports Hall of Fame, which is only a few years old. Uh, but I, I saw him there, and I reached out to the director there to get his contact information. And uh, Mr. Beeman was more than willing to come on Beltway Golfer and, and talk about his career and his life in golf and how that pertains specifically to the Washington, D.C. area and growing up playing golf around here. And he gave me almost two hours of time. We sat down for like an hour and 45 minutes. I, uh, you know, I edited a few minutes here and there. But the amount of time that we sat down together and we didn't touch on so many huge things that he's done his career. Uh, I've, I've said in a few of these podcasts that at the end of it, oh, you know, we, we could end it here because I think we could talk for two or three hours. This time, you know, with Mr. Beeman, I feel like we could have talked for, for five hours. To give you an example, Dean Beeman is credited really with, with, with creating the first yardage book. He was the first amateur golfer to start uh, walking off yardages. And when playing with Jack Nicholas, uh, Jack Nicholas at first kind of made fun of him and then adopted doing the same thing. And at the time, yardage books, you know, didn't really exist, specific, uh, certainly for, for players and tournaments. Um, Dean Beeman is credited for kind of starting that. Dean Beeman, certainly of his generation, uh, was considered the, the, the best putter around. Didn't even talk about, you know, his, you know what made him such a, a ter tremendous putter. He was a great golfer and was not a long hitter whatsoever. Tremendous short game. Ne never brought that up in conversation. His time in commissioner. Dean Beeman started what is now the Corn Ferry Tour. He started, it was, it was the Ben Hogan Tour, and then it's had several names, the Nike Tour, Web.com Tour, has had several names, and now the Corn Ferry Tour. Dean Beeman started that. We didn't even bring that up. The Senior Tour, now the Champions Tour, Dean Beeman started that. We didn't even bring that up. Dean Beeman has had such an impact on golf, he's in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame, and he was never a broadcaster. 
that's the, the impact that he had on the sport and television contracts and the way that the, the sport is televised, they put him in the Hall of Fame. His impact on golf is, is almost immeasurable. And so to get the opportunity to sit down with him and just kind of pick his brain a little bit was, was, was tremendous. But like I said, uh, really only scratched the surface. So I'm not, it's, it's, a, it's a long one. I think the, it came out to be a little over 90 minutes, so we'll get to it. But I hope you enjoyed it. I, I really did. Uh, I hope if uh, this will prompt you to, to pick up uh, a book I mentioned in the podcast. It's called Golf's Driving Force by Adam Schupack. Great book that really focuses on his impact as commissioner and the pushback he got from a lot of the players, specifically Jack Nicholas and, and Arnold Palmer, in transforming the PGA into the, into the moneymaker, both for players, for networks, also for charities during his, during his time as commissioner. So check it out. But in any case, let's get to it. Episode 39, Beltway Golfer Podcast, Mr. Dean Beeman. Enjoy. Mr. Beeman, thank you very much for, for, for coming on and, and, and joining me. And where are you now? Where, where are you located? Where do you live? Uh, I'm, I'm in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. How far are you from TPC Sawgrass? Well, I don't hit it very far, but a few tee shots. <laughs> <laughs> a few tee shots away. It's going to take me a few more tee shots than it used to. So since, since this show, Beltway Golfer, is focuses on golf in the surrounding area in Washington, D.C., and if you look in the World Golf Hall of Fame, just as one example, I believe, and maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, you are the only member of the World Golf Hall of Fame from the greater Washington, D.C. area. Is there any, do you know if there's anybody else from, from, from this area? Not, not that I'm aware of, no. <clears throat> well, let's start there. Why do you think that is? Because one of the premises of my show, at least nowadays, is there, there's so many, this is a huge area for golf. When you were you know, going back to the 50s and 60s, was, how, how big was golf in this region? Well, from, from, a, you know, from a competitive standpoint, they were, because you're close to uh, uh, three, three different jurisdictions, you've got Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., each one has an association, and each one has golf tournaments. There was, uh, there was an enormous amount of competition. And with the, of course, when I was learning how to play golf, when I just started, I was playing in the junior golf tournaments, and Frank Emmett had the finest junior golf program in the world at that time. Uh, he was he was in Bethesda, and he he did it as a as a literally as a volunteer who loved golf, and he he got the schoolboy championship started, and. And, and organized through the Virginia Golf Association, the uh, D.C. Golf Association, the Maryland, Baltimore, through the, you know, I think probably through the Defense Department because we had Army bases and and, and I'm trying to think of how many how many tournaments were at. I guess the the Marine base there in in uh, Northern Virginia. Quantico, Quantico had a, yeah. Had a, yeah, had a, Quantico had a tournament up near Baltimore, west of Baltimore. The uh, Army base up there had so so <clears throat> you know literally it was almost it was pretty difficult to play in every one of them they had all summer long. So partic particularly if 
if you were, you know, I, I tried, started at an early age to play in the national junior tournaments. And so I, uh, you know, I qualified for the USGA junior and the, and, and the, I'm trying to think the, there's a national tournament that was conducted by the, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Go ahead. That, that's all right. But, but so you, you, cause I, I heard on another interview with you, you got your, you got really into golf when your parents joined Bethesda country club. Is that right? And that's where you really kind of learned the game and got good at it. Yeah, I learned the game at the country club. They they had encouraged the young players playing. There was a an assistant pro there, Gene Aldridge, that that really sort of gravitated towards the kids and the juniors, and and he he was very helpful and he was he he loved Ben Hogan. And so he taught, <laughs> he, he taught about, uh, he, he taught all of us about Ben Hogan early on. So it was, it was, it, you know, they had a strong junior golf program and, and we, uh, we all competed. And, and, and I, actually, I think it might've been the first club in the DC area that let junior golfers play in the club championship, as a matter of fact. Is that right? Oh yeah. I played in the club championship, uh, played against my brother. I remember the first time I played in it, I played against my brother and got beat, and then I caddied for him, and I think he won it. So, <laughs> and he was just two years older than me. So that that's interesting that the, the the pro at Bethesda Country Club was such a big Hogan guy, because as a story that you told me when you when we first spoke, you went to play in a junior tournament, an amateur junior tournament, at age fifteen or so, won it, and got the honor to come back here and do what. Well, the Middle Atlantic Junior Championship was at Chevy Chase Club. Okay. This is in 1953. And I was 15 years old, and I shot, I think I shot 67 to, to qualify. And, and what they had organized through Frank Emmett, actually, that the USGA Junior Championship that, that was played in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Used the qualifying for the Middle Atlantic Junior for qualifying for the USGA Junior Championship. So I shot 67, so I qualified for a match play in the Middle Atlantic Junior and at the same time qualified for the USGA Junior Championship in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. So I was, I was only 15, and they have age brackets in those junior tournaments. They had uh, 13 and under, and then 14 and 15, and then uh, 16 and 17. And, and so, you know, when, when you're 14, 15, you're expected to play in your bracket. And I said, I don't want to play in my bracket. I want to play for the championship. And so they let me do that. And I won the tournament at, at Chevy Chase. And as a result of, of winning that tournament and, and, and being, I think I was low, low, score for the for for the nationwide for the USGA junior. Ben Hogan was coming back from from the British Open after winning the Masters and the US Open, the British Open, and he had scheduled a an exhibition at in Leesburg, Virginia, at Goose Creek. And which unfortunately uh, is no no longer here, but the, the yeah, times that I've played I've played 
right. I played Goose Creek many times, and they, Ben Hogan had a big plaque right there that he did have the course record, the longstanding course record at Goose Creek. Well, I'm not sure that that's – he must have played another day than when he played with us because we got rained out at 14. <laughs> Maybe that's why he had the course record. He only had to play 14 holes. <laughs> they left that part out of the story on the plaque. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, so I got invited to play in that exhibition. That must have been quite a thrill. I mean, at, at age 15, were you a huge Ben Hogan guy because of the product? Well, I, I was a Ben Hogan fan, no question about it. And I, and I think, of course, everybody was in the, 50, in the early 50s. He was, he was pretty special after coming back from his automobile accident and then winning three majors. You know, after his automobile accident in, I guess, 1949, he won six major championships, three of them in that one year. Wow. In reading, in reading your biography, and, and to back up a bit, one, one of the reasons that, that we reached out, aside from the fact that I've, ever since I started the show, you've been on my list of people I, you know, I'd love to have on the show being a, you know, essentially the most prominent golfer from this area of all time. But recently read, read I think it's right over my head here, Adam Shupak's book, Golf's Driving Force. And so there's, there's a lot we can talk about here. I'm going to try to hit a lot of different things. But one of the things I found so interesting, and maybe it's just because it's such a different era, but we're talking about these tournaments that you're winning at age 15, and you remained an amateur winning huge tournaments, two U.S. amateurs, one British amateur, if I have that right, but until you were 29 years old. Right. Yes, I, I won the British first and then two U.S. amateurs. There were <clears throat> most tournaments back there for amateurs were match, were medal, match play tournaments, but there were two medal play tournaments that were the, the Eastern Amateur in Portsmouth, uh, Virginia, okay. and the Porter Cup up in uh, Rochester, uh, New York. And that's, that's, that's the two, you know, the two biggest metal play tournaments. And so I won, um, I won, I guess, played, I played all over. I played, won the Trans-Mississippi, won the Eastern Amateur four times out of five years. And then I won, I guess, won the, I won the Porter Cup in about 1964. I played a lot of amateur golf, and I played all over the country. And, of course, I played in the U.S. Open first time in, in, as a, a junior in high school. I played in the U.S. Open twice in high school. That, I mean, that would be a huge deal nowadays. That that must have, that had to have been a huge deal then, was it? Like I don't, a, a high schoolers in the U.S. Open. I don't think, but I don't think at that time anybody had ever played at the U.S. Open out of high school, and wow. certainly twice in, in in high school. I'm not sure anybody ever did that. How did you fare in those two tournaments when you were still in high school? Well, I didn't. I didn't make the cut. Didn't do do very well. But I I, <laughs> I had some great teachers in school and I didn't have to take final exams two years in a row. So I, I was a big winner. And dur so during your amateur career, you also played at University of Maryland. Uh, um, yes. What, but being such a prominent amateur golfer, you know, winning some of the, the, the biggest amateur tournaments on the planet, you know, does, does college golf take a back seat? No, I don't think, I don't think college golf took a back seat. You know, the big, you know, most, when I when I went into when I graduated from high school, I really had, had was just starting to win significant tournaments. I'd been a great local 
junior player, but I really hadn't, uh, other than qualifying for the U.S. Open a couple times. And, you know, one kind of a funny story, Alex, I don't want to take, I don't want to take all day uh, with you, but uh, when I was, when I was a sophomore, when I was just going in my junior year at, at, in high school, at, at BCC. Right on East West Highway right there in Bethesda. Right. And I had a very cooperative group of teachers because they schedule you, you schedule your, you, you had, you, you, the curriculum basically was the academic stuff. And then you had lunchtime and you usually had two classes after lunch. And the two classes that I got my teachers to cooperate with me was I had gym and shop. They had a shop class and a gym class. So in my, my, I think my gym teacher was also, no, one of my regular teachers was a golf coach. So he, uh, he connived with my uh, gym teacher and my shop teacher. And I had lunch at the, at the BCC and then my shop teacher would, well, I'd tell my shop teacher I was going to gym and my gym teacher I was going to shop and I'd go practice, go home and practice. <laughs> so I was only, I was only in school until about noon. And, and how long, how long before they figured that out? Well, they all, they were all conniving with me. Oh. But my, what happened was <clears throat> I had, I wanted, I really had in my mind, I wanted to play in the U.S. Open as I was starting my junior year in high school. <clears throat> so I, I wrote a letter to, uh, back then, Golf, Golf World had a schedule of some of winter tournaments. And what uh, Golf, Golf World was the preeminent golf magazine at the time? Yeah, it's a weekly magazine, Golf World. And in the back of it, they had uh, a whole list of tournaments in the wintertime. And there was a South Florida amateur tournament in Palm Beach, Florida, at the Breakers Hotel. So I wrote a, you know, wrote a handwritten note to to the golf shop there at the, the Breakers Hotel. Yeah, I didn't know who 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 ran it, and I got a nice letter back from a that I didn't realize was the was the director of golf <clears throat> was a lady. Her name was Bessie Finn. Okay, and she was a Canadian gal that was probably the first professional lady professional that was the director of golf at any big big golf golf operation so and so i i explained to her that i you know i lived in maryland the weather wasn't very good in the winter time i needed to practice because i wanted to qualify for the u.s open so she invited me to turn to the tournament <clears throat> so now i had to figure out how to get there so i once i got the invitation i went to my mother and dad uh, who both worked and told them, yeah, I got this invitation to play in this uh, tournament in South Florida. I really need to go down there and practice and get ready for the season. And uh, so my mother took took uh, a week off from her job <clears throat> and drove and drove me down to South Florida to play. But one little hitch in the thing, she says, you know, your older brother who was a senior in high school, 
why, should, why shouldn't he be able to go down and play? I said, well, he wasn't invited. I said, well, you're going to have to get him invited or we can't do this. <laughs> so I had to write Bessie Finn a letter said, hey, listen, you know, I appreciate it. I'm getting ready to go. But actually, my brother's a good player. And, and if I can get an invitation, I think I can really now come down. So she got another invitation from Bessie Finn from my brother. So we went down <clears throat> and stayed in Fort Lauderdale. I had an aunt and uncle that lived in Fort Lauderdale. And we stayed with them and drove up to Palm Beach every day for the tournament. And I won, so I won, I won the tournament as a junior in high school. I won, and they had some big. They had a, it was a big tournament. They had had a, all the all the. And, and, to be, and to be clear, this was a tournament of all ages. Oh yeah, oh yeah, sure. And so I won the tournament, and then came back, and and qualified and and entered the U.S. Open. And qualified for the U.S. Open that was played in in uh, at uh, the Olympic Club in San Francisco. That's that's and that's also quite a strategy to, to write to her. She must have been impressed with your ambition that I, I I really want an invitation to your tournament because I've got bigger aspirations of qualifying for the U.S. Open. She must have said, Yeah, wow. yeah. Well, she 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 brought right into it. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> so you know, so I so I I, I took that and got sort of ahead of everybody and and got a couple of weeks of practice in Florida and came back and, and had a really good season and, and qualified for the U.S. Open there. Yeah. So part of my question about your amateur career and the fact that you were an amateur until you're the age of, of 29, being such a prominent, accomplished golfer, first off, like I, that, that probably wouldn't happen today. And, and, and I, and I'm guessing that the main reason is today, there's just, there's just so much money in professional golf. And back then maybe there wasn't, I mean, it, it, how much of a role did that play for you not to turn professional until you were 29? I understand that you had an insurance business. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I was married and had a child while, while I was uh, still in school. University of Maryland and had a had a job in, ins in the insurance business. So I was working and playing golf and going to school at the same time. And the, 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 there was there was a question in my mind whether I wanted to stay as an amateur or, or be a professional. And this was oh in 1954, long 55, 56, along there. And now, now I, I had played in I had played in tour tournaments. I'd gone to Florida, I guess, in my first year of college. I went down and played in a, in, in a, I think it was the Miami Open. I played in the tour event in Baltimore that we used to play in Baltimore. So I, and I played in the U.S. Open a couple of times. So I, you know, I was very familiar with the tour. And it was a question of whether financially it was smarter to stay amateur or, or, or be a professional. And that was because of the money that you were making in the insurance business and the yeah, commitment because, that it would yeah. take. Right. right. And I, and I, you know, I was, I, if you, back then, of course, if you go on a tour, unless you were the, one of the top players, you were, you were you get in your car and you 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 know you're away from home all the time. I was married and I had a child, so it was a it was a question. Sure. But about nineteen after I won the amateur, clearly after I won the amateur, 
the first time after I'd already been on the Walker Cup team twice and the America's Cup team at the time in the World Cup and and won the British amateur and the US amateur, I decided that I yeah, I did want to turn professional. So my plans were after the Masters tournament in '63, that I would announce I was going to turn professional. And uh, what happened was, is well, while I was practicing in the winter in, in early '63, I injured my right hand uh, and my right wrist, and it was it was a very bad injury. So I, I really couldn't I couldn't play. I couldn't practice. And for the next couple of years, I only played in three or four tournaments a year and, and, and couldn't practice very much. I, I still played very well and I won some tournaments. I won the U.S. Amateur. But I had this continuing problem with my right wrist that if I hit too many practice shots, it, it started hurting. And, you know, medicine for that kind of injury was in the dark ages back then. I went to a specialist in New York. And 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 they they didn't have a solution to it that really worked. I had a lot of injections of cortisone, which was a mistake. You know, today they don't give you more than one or two. I had I th I think I had 13 injections of cortisone in my wrist back then, which only filled up scar tissue. It was it made it worse. It didn't make it better. So I finally decided in. In sixty, in late '66, okay, that I was going to uh, have surgery, and I so I went up to New York and had uh, really exploratory surgery. So they went in and, and opened up my right wrist. They cleaned out all the scar tissue, and they found that I had an anomaly in my wrist area, and. One of the reasons I never hit it very far because I had a restriction of my wrist even before I had injured it. And so they 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 took my carpal ligament and transplanted that under a couple of tendons in my right hand. They couldn't stop the inflammation, but they could stop the pain. So <clears throat> once I once I found I could practice and play, that was early the next spring. I went down to Florida and played uh Couple of tournaments I played in the Orlando and the tour event in Orlando, the Orlando Open, and I think it was at Rio Pinar Golf Course. And I found I could practice and play every day, and so that's when I decided to turn professional. So I played in the Masters that year, and after the Masters, I sat down with Joe Dye, who was executive director of USGA, and explained to him my situation and told him I was now going to turn pro. I'd been named, I'd been named on the on the Walker Cup team and told him that I was not going to be able to play in the Walker Cup because I was going to turn pro. So they withdrew drew my name. And so I started playing in a couple of tournaments. At that time, the, the tournament policy board at the at the tour or the player director they, they really didn't have a tournament possible. This was in 67. Mm -hmm. uh, but the players didn't like amateurs coming out and being able to play. They wanted us to have to qualify on Monday. And <clears throat> get, I was getting sponsor exemptions. So they 
passed a rule just after the master's term, I think it was in May, that that you could only get three sponsors exemptions. Okay. Now, now I've turned pro, but I can only play <laughs> three events until I go to Q school. I went to Q school in the fall, got got my card, and uh, that qualified me to qualify on Monday. So that that's that's how I got into it, but. I was delayed. Long-term answer to your to your question about why why didn't they turn pro? It was about four, three or four years that I was physically unable to really compete at that oh, level. Just, so without that oh, wrist injury, you may I have, have turned. I would pro. have turned pro four four years before. Well, that, that, there, there's the answer. And then, so you know, we'll get into the transition from being a tour player to commissioner, but you were essentially on the tour for seven or so years. Did that wrist injury linger into your professional career? And did that play a factor fast forwarding to when you decided to, to stop being a professional tour player and, and, and take the offer to become commissioner? Well, the answer to that is yes and no, because uh, what happened was when I was playing in the, in the U S open at, in 1971 at Merriam, I was in really, I was only one shot out of the lead. And on the 16th hole, I hit it in the rough to the right and trying to hit it out of the rough to get it up to the green. I, I, I hurt my, my left wrist in the same way I did my right wrist. So this was 60, oh, let's see, 71. Okay. I went back to my same doctor that gave me the surgery. They, they did a couple of things, but I had a continuing problem. So in, in 1970, late, late 72, I had my left wrist operated on by the same surgeon who did the same thing. He went in and, and transplanted the, the, the carpal ligament under the tendons. And so I was out of, I was out of commission and in most of the end of 72, had a surgery in 72 and 73. I didn't really get back on tour until March, April, almost up March or April. And uh, so in May, I had been elected by the players to the tournament policy board. Joe Dye, they, they, the tour had reorganized under its own uh, organization in 68. <clears throat> so. I, I was on the policy board for as an advisor for a couple of years, and then I was elected to the board. So I went. I was going to a. I was going to a uh, policy board meeting in May, in Memphis, and Joe Dye, who was the commissioner at the time, and our chairman, who was chairman of the board of Coca Cola Company, his name was Paul Austin, <clears throat> asked me to drive to the golf course with them what, where we had our meeting. And so they told me that I had, that Joe Dye was going to retire when his contract was up the following year. And they wanted me to become commissioner. Now, this was in May of, this was in May of 73. Okay. Good. So I, I <clears throat> he said, you know, don't answer me now, think about it. So. About a week later, about a week later, I called Paul Austin, who was chairman, 
and told him that I appreciated and I was I was I was very flattered that they, he would think of me to become commissioner. But I said, as you may know, I had I had just I had just had surgery on my left hand. I was just recovering. I'd never done anything in my life that I that I I quit while I was failing. That doesn't wasn't me. <clears throat> and I wasn't doing very well on tour. So I said, I just don't feel with my whole life uh, in golf that I've had that I would walk away from competition while I was doing it so badly. And it is all relative. I mean, you, you, you did, you won a few tournaments on tour, correct? I mean, and you were, you were competing. Well, I, won, I had won, won four tournaments by then. And I, you know, I, I won the, I won the Quad Cities tournament twice at, at John Deere. The first time it was an unofficial event, and then I won it the next year when it was official. So I'd won four tournaments up till then, one, one unofficial and three official. <clears throat> but I told him I just wasn't going to walk away under those circumstances. Then golf was quite small. It wasn't a really big job. I was really going to have to cut it. I was making more money on the tour than they were willing to pay someone. Than Joe Dye was getting as why, commissioner. Why? Why you? Was it in part because they knew that you had business acumen from running an insurance? I business? had a business background. I had been on the board. You know, when when the original tour was organized uh, away from the PGA of America, the players asked me to come on the board, even though I, I wasn't eligible to vote as a tour member. You had to get you have to be on two or three years before you were a voting member. So I couldn't be a voting member and therefore couldn't serve on the board. But the players asked me to they created a, a special position on the board as an advisor, a player advisor. And I'd been on the board for two years as an advisor and then was elected on the board. And I had a business background. I knew golf very well. And that's what they thought I was a good fit for commissioner. Anyway, I told them I, I wasn't willing to do that. I wasn't willing to walk away particularly when I wasn't performing at the level that I, I was happy with. So they, they formed a committee to look for a new commissioner. And I went back on, uh, on tour and started playing. And later that summer, this was May, in late August, early September, I won, I won another tournament. And I went from there to, to, the, to the West Coast events in the fall. And thought about it and thought what was happening. And about a week later, I called Paul Austin on the phone. I said, I, Paul, I'm sure you saw I won a tournament last week. And I've thought about uh, what I've got to do with my life in, in golf for the rest of my life. And if you're still interested in being commissioner, I can walk away now. Because you got that win. <laughs> And I was, you know, I was exempt for now for the next two years. I was in the, all the tournaments, the Masters and the Open and all those events. So I, I felt, I felt that I, it was a time in my life. I'm now 35 years old. I lost almost seven or eight years to delaying becoming a professional from amateur golf and then the injuries that I had. And I thought I could, I could do more for myself and go, for golf than I could playing. So they they had a meeting in December in Atlanta, 
at the Coca-Cola headquarters, as a matter of fact, and uh, interviewed five or six people for the job and, and announced in late December that they'd chosen me to be the next commissioner. Very cool. And, when, and so the, 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 the tour was based where? At that time, when you, when, when you became Actually, Christian. it was quite interesting. I, my, I didn't have a contract when I started. I didn't have, a, they, I didn't know what they were going to pay me, but the only condition I had was I wasn't going to live in New York. <laughs> but the officers, Joe Dye had his office in New York. So on 1st of January, when I became employed, I, I commuted, uh, I commuted from DC to New York three days a week. And read all the files and talked to Joe Dye every day and the staff, the small staff he had there. And on March 1st, when I actually formally became commissioner, mm-hmm. I was employed January 1st, but I didn't become commissioner until March 1st. It took me 13 days to close down the office and move it to D.C. And I, I think a lot of folks don't realize that, 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 that you know certainly at the beginning portion of your tenure as commissioner, that the PGA Tour was effectively based right here on the border of Bethesda and Washington, D.C. on River Road. Yep, that's right. It was in an apartment building. What happened was there was a dentist office on the first floor of that apartment building. And the dentist had, had gone. It, it, was, it was open space. And on starting on January 1st, I made a deal with the owner to move the tour offices there. And I think we had 1,500 square feet of office space, maybe 1,200 square feet. And that's where the tour office was for five years. 1,200 square feet, that's that's not a lot. How, how, what was your staff? It was pl- it was plenty for what we had because we, didn't, we only had about eight or nine employees to start out with. I think we ended up with 12 there or 15 people at the end of five years. And we were looking to expand our office space and and we're looking for other places at the time. And so how many how many years? Because once we, we're going to get into, you know, the, the, the accomplishments and the impact that you had during your tenure on the PGA Tour and the sports landscape in general, which was immense. And there's so many things we can talk about. But but first, I'm just curious, how long were you based there on River Road before you moved to Florida? We were there five years, five years. Yeah, and it was at that time it was called it was, the tournament play the tournament players division of the PGA of America. Thank you. So when did that change happen? Just from from the tournament players division to the PGA Tour. Well, you know it, it was it was it took it took a long time. You you got you got to remember golf was a minor sport back then. We had major athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, golf had enjoyed through the through the the decades of very, very high profile individuals. But the organization itself was nothing like the NFL or Major League Baseball or, or even tennis. And to give you an example, when I became commissioner, bowling had more events on television and got more income from television than golf did. Even though we had great stars, great personality and stars like Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholson and Lee Trevino, and we had had before that the Byron Nelsons and the Hogans and the Caspers and uh, so athletes, but we, we, were, we were a minor sport. So at that time that you took over, aside from 
the Palmers and the Nicholases and the Trevinos and others, like that next tier of golfer, you know, were they making a, a really good living or was it, was it tough out there? Unbelievable. Oh, it was tough. It, it was tough. They, they were maybe making more money than they could make being a golf pro or an assistant pro or a teacher. But clearly, clearly uh, the income for golfers was very, very, uh, very small compared to other sports. And that's one, one of the reasons I took the job. I thought golf stood for more than that, had more value than that, and that no one had, had gone through the difficult time of creating a, an image, creating a brand, and, 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 <clears throat> and taking the famous players and, and melding that with an organization so that we could become bigger and better and more famous and were more attractive to more people in the in the public viewing. But so that and nobody ever even tried that. Nobody even nobody, you know, Joe Dye it was there for five years and Joe Dye had no idea how to monetize the value of what golf was. And, and that's really your lasting. I mean, I read the whole book of Golf's Driving Force, which I encourage everybody to go out and read by Adam Shupak. And you have the, your tenure as PGA commissioner. You had all, you know, lots of different impacts and, and, and lasting impacts. But the big one, the one that, that's standing is what you're touching on right here is turning, making golf attractive to, to sponsors and advertisers and turn that into television contracts and, 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 and to what we see now today, not just in golf, but across the entire sports landscape. Correct. Well, golf, you know, there were there were some huge, you know, as I got into it, there were some huge obstacles to to financial success for golf. The first obstacle was that, you know, a, a television network could televise any other sport except golf very inexpensively. You could go, you know, NBA basketball or or, or college basketball. It wouldn't cost you but ten or fifteen, no more than twenty thousand dollars to send somebody over into a stadium where they're playing a basketball game and sit in a box where they already had all they have to do is hook up a camera. So it wouldn't you know? I'd say maximum twenty five thousand dollars for football, basketball, baseball. They're within a confined stadium, and the announcer's sitting in a booth in a in a chair. And so, but but in order to do a golf tournament, it cost two hundred fifty thousand dollars in production fees, because they had to bring the cameras in, they had to stretch the wires out, they only telecast four holes, five maximum, because it cost too much money to do any more, and to build towers for people to sit in. They didn't have the they didn't have the small cameras, so they didn't have a guy walking around with the camera because they needed a the cameras were so huge, you couldn't carry it around with you. <clears throat> so we were at a huge financial disadvantage from other sports just in the production. We, it, it, you know, our rights fees were all, all less than $100,000 because our production fees were $250,000. And, and other sports only had a $25,000 cost of production. So we were... We were we, we we were at a huge disadvantage, and uh, the the other the other the other problem, of course, was that 
we had we had no commercial attachments to us at all. And Joe Dye was absolutely opposed to commercialism. So so that had never occurred to anybody. And and the the um, ABC did did most of our telecasting back then when I became commissioner. And the networks, and there were only three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. There weren't all these other networks you see today. But those three networks all had a policy that that the cameraman nor an announcer could either show or talk about anything commercial except in a commercial break. So there was a big, big rehaul that that was going on when I became commissioner, that the networks were complaining that Amana, <laughs> the company Amana, the guy liked golf, and, and at, on weekends, they put a hat out with a mana on it, and they paid a, a, a player a thousand bucks to wear a hat for the weekend, so he'd get on television, and the network went crazy. So, so and they and they worked though like hell to avoid showing that hat. And there was a prohibit they the network prohibited, for instance, any football, baseball, basketball player to have anything commercial on their uniform. They weren't allowed to do that. So, so, so how did that? How did you? How did you make that shift? How did you? How did you sell the yeah, tour, we, the players? We work. We work pretty hard at at trying to convince Rune Arledge, who had most of golf, and he wouldn't budge. No way in the world would he even consider it. And so we we were working, trying to work with the other networks to to try to show them. And and during this period of time that this was happening, ESPN came on the scene first. ESPN. So we bought time from ESPN and and got a couple couple of commercial title sponsors, and we bought the time ourselves with a commercial sponsor, had them pay for it, and showed the networks how profitable it could be. So that was really the start of the transition. And so once we were able to, uh, to do that, we, we, we made a new contract with and, and got away from ABC in rural Ireland, who was absolutely adamant. And CBS was, was the one network that had an open mind towards this. And so the, the startup, being able to monetize the value of golf on television through a title and commercial sponsorship that was facilitated by CBS. Interesting. So you, you effectively showed them the money and that got them to change their mind. Oh yeah. And, and, and we could, you know, and golf, golf was, it was hard to sell for the networks. There was not very much profit in it. It wasn't that they were making all the profits and we weren't making much right feed. You know, they, they golf had a low rating, okay? And so <clears throat> when you buy a commercial on golf, you only got to so many people and that's how you evaluated everything. Well, once we were, once we showed them that the title sponsorship could be worth 10 times 
the value of anything they'd ever thought of before. And the reason is, is that if you name a tournament, for instance, the Kemper Open, that was the first real commercial event. That Kemper may be spending a lot more to, to, to have that event than they could buy time, a lot more. But what people then be realized was that and, and what we showed them because we, we went and, and, and monetized everything and evaluated it and showed them what the value is, that golf was covered by every newspaper in the country sure. and covered by every local telecast. Well, if they call it the Kemper Open and the Kemper Open is in every headline or every newspaper in the agate page and on every local sports telecast, that was far more valuable. That was far more than a, valuable. Than a 30 second commercial. Hey, that's right. And then the commercial break when people sure. go take a leak. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, and by commercial, the first commercialized tournament, just to be, just to be clear, this means that the name of the tournament was essentially the corporate brand as opposed to San Diego open or Miami open or and so on and so forth. Right. We, 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 we found out very early on that if you allowed somebody to say, it's going to be the Buick San Diego Open, that the newspapers would still call it the San Diego Open. So it's, if you if you eliminated anything that they could say except what the name was, they couldn't avoid it. Right. And that was that was the, the difference between golf being what it is today and what it was then. So that, that was a monumental shift. And, and how, like how long did it take? And, from that, and that was a monumental shift for golf, but also every other sport. Once that was opened up, you see stadiums named, okay? You see you see Nike swatches on uniforms. You see all those things that create income for the sport and for the networks. The value of sports on television is, is, is enormous compared to where it was before before we and golf golf is the sport that changed that policy for everybody that's fascinating so you know the the, the nba players wearing you know got logos on their jerseys have the have the Kemp, have you and the kemper open to think on, on, on you know for how much money they're making how, how but how fast was that transition from those you know at the beginning of your tenure when you know there, there's not a lot of money to you you creating this shift starting to create value and and the sponsorships you know, how long did it take before the purses really started to get up and, and it started to trickle down to the players? We didn't we didn't make any progress on on television for at least three years when I became commissioner. And it just started about three or four years later. And it took a period of the next five years to really to really make people realize how valuable a different policy would be. Sure. So it was a five or six year transition, but it didn't start for three years. Uh, and it really didn't start for three years because when I became commissioner, ABC had a contract that gave them the the rights plus the right of first refusal mm-hmm. for the next contract period. Interesting. So we were stuck. You know, they they literally controlled everything for a couple of years. And so it took me 
almost three years to get out of that ABC contract. That's why Bruno Arles was so unhappy with me because he controlled golf. So we, you know, starting in my fourth or fifth year is that was the first time we were able to get and actually do business with other networks. So it wasn't just the the networks that you're getting pushback from, but it was the star players themselves. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, it was the star players through their through their agents. You know, Mark McCormick was Mark McCormick was bigger than golf. Okay. And uh, his his notion was, and that was carried by Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas at the time, that that any any money that the tour got from a commercial sponsor was money they couldn't have. So it was either or, because because they the star players each had their own tournaments. And they had their own sponsorship deals with a lot of these companies, so they thought they 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 viewed you right. as competition, right? Yeah, that was that was it was a a, tr- a tricky needle to thread. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, there, there, there's there's so much in the book and your your tenure that you know the drama and conflict and and that we could get into. I don't think I don't think we have we have time to cover all of it. We we might be here for three hours or four hours. But I certainly encourage people to read the book. So when, because I want to, I want to move along to a lot of things I want to talk about. Like when, so when did, when did the, the the TPC concept kind of come about? Well, the the when I became commissioner, the, we had not held the first players championship. What was originally called the tournament player championship, TPC, and. So the first one was scheduled to be in Atlanta in August. I became commissioner on March 1st. It was already scheduled. So I, I was, I was one of my responsibilities was to make sure that that tournament was run correctly. And it was the first tournament that the tour had ever run itself. We'd never run a tournament ourselves. So that was, that was the, the kind of first order of business. Nothing was happening in television because we already had a contract with ABC that took two or three years to get out of and move on. So I, I, Joe Dye's concept and the policy board's concept when the Players' Championship was, was they decided to have it, was to operate it like the U.S. Open is operated, that you move it from city to city and place to place. And the idea was the tour was to move it to places where we already had a tournament and have a, an, a community abandoned there of tournament for a year while they have yours and then come back the next year while you go someplace else. That was that was a concept. And the idea is that when you bring in yours, you're going to you're likely to have a better field, more yeah. eyes on it, a bigger, it'd be a right. bigger tournament right. for that one year. Right. Right. You know, so the one was already scheduled. I scheduled the second one for in in the August. It was a late August date for the event, which is a problem because that's when the season is ending. You've got you've got the the uh, the in in July. You've got the the British Open, and then you got the PGA Championship, and then the. T- it was it was a kind of in a crowded part of the schedule, and because it was in August, 
there, there <clears throat> we 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 held it in August in Atlanta, pretty pretty hot there. Texas in Texas in August was pretty hot there, so it was it was not as you as you know. If you look at the PGA Championship and the U.S. Open, it doesn't go south very often <laughs> in the hot weather. So I, when I was in, in it, sort of after the first one was, and I scheduled the second one, it became a, apparent to me that the local community was taking advantage of the of the of the, the extra players they were getting in the full field they were getting by holding it but they weren't really embracing the event as they as a super special event mm -hmm. they were taking advantage of the fact that everybody was going to show up for their event finally gotcha. and so i felt it had to have its own had to have its own venue and then as i i looked at the at the august date i thought that that was not that was not the best date for it. The best date for it would be try to make it the first important event of the year. It would have it most significant impact to build the event. So I scheduled it for the third year as all this was being developed in my mind of how to make it what, what, it, what we needed to make it. We, we scheduled it in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale where the Jackie Gleason tournament was played. Okay. <clears throat> so while that was happening, I started looking for a permanent place. What tournament would completely abandon their own event and fully embrace the Players' Championship? And I happened to, it was just happenstance, really, that I, I, I had my son, who was about 12 or 13 years old at the time, he was on spring break and he came to Florida with me to, while we were watching a couple of tournaments and playing a little golf. Yep. And we, he happened to go to the Jacksonville Open. And I asked uh, the Jacksonville organization people when I went over to visit the tournament, if there was a place I might be able to play golf. And they said, oh, yeah, there's a new, a new golf course over by the beaches. Here's you go way out here and go and go <laughs> the uh, sawgrass. He said, it's, you know, not very, nobody's playing golf over there at the bankrupt. So the golf course is still open. So my son and I went over to Sawgrass that was owned by three banks. Actually, the developer had gone bust and, and played Sawgrass. And I got, I played nine holes, actually. And I was so impressed by what I thought it could be, even though it was on, in bankruptcy. And the golf course had such potential that we quit after nine holes and went back to the tournament organization. And I started thinking of, and I started them thinking about what, what this could be if we, in Jacksonville, their tournament was really at the, they were the, they were an afterthought of the Florida swing, okay. you know, Miami and Orlando and, Fort Lauderdale and all the South Florida, Jacksonville was sort of a stepchild for golf. And they didn't, they didn't year after year get a really great field. They got okay field that they could make it work. And so I sat down with the tournament organization here and said, you know, <clears throat> it, how would you like to be the best tournament in Florida instead of the, instead of the after run? Sure. And 
they they took up the idea. They thought it was a great idea. And we then developed the relationship with Jacksonville. They never raised more than $40,000 $40, for charity. And I said, if you embrace this championship and we bring it and we can make a deal with Sawgrass, the banks, really, we'll guarantee the local community $100,000 for charity. And so they went for the idea. <clears throat> the banks were part of the community. Two of the banks were local. One was, was controlled in New York. And so we sat down with the banks and developed a plan and developed a contract to hold the tournament of Sawgrass. And that's how it started. So then, next step, I thought it would be a permanent place. Well, I said, if it's going to be permanent, we ought to buy Sawgrass from the banks. Right. It's under bankruptcy. It's got to be a bargain. Sure. And so we, I negotiated a deal with, with the banks to buy the Sawgrass Golf Course and all the facilities around it for absolute super bargain that you would <laughs> you would you would you 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 figure you couldn't turn it down so i went to my policy board i i i i i made a deal that you could never you know it, it was a deal of the century to buy it okay we bought we had we were going to move the tour headquarters here everything so we bought we had the golf course we were buying the clubhouse there were, there were, I think, 28 units on the beach on the Atlantic Ocean. There was a beach club. There was a 10,000 square foot office building. And about five, five extra acres with a maintenance facility, all for less than two million bucks. Wow. And so I went to the policy board. We could have wholesaled the beach units for about a million two, so I could have owned everything for eight hundred thousand dollars plus a, a ten thousand dollar ten thousand foot office building wow. where the tour headquarters could be. So I had I prepped everybody. I thought I had everybody on board at the board when we came to a decision. We were ready to vote on it. It would have been a done deal. And one of the players stood up, raised his hand at the board meeting, says. Well, if we think it's a good deal, I like it, I'm all for it, but why don't we wait until the first tournament is played? And since the tour hadn't bought anything worth more than an IBM Selectric typewriter mm -hmm. before, everybody breathed a sigh of relief and says, that's a great idea. Let's wait till the tournament's over. Well, between that board meeting and the tournament, a big developer came in and bought the whole thing from the bank. <laughs> so we were out. So then I tried to cut the same deal with the new developer, and they said, hey, listen, if, if you can't get your board to agree to buy it for the bargain that you had, <clears throat> they're not going to buy it from us for more. Sure. So I said, well, I, I, we, get, we need to own our own place. So I started looking for a place to build our own. That must have been devastating. <laughs> devastating, though. I mean, to, to to negotiate such a fantastic deal, have it oh, yeah. have it at the one yard line, and, and yeah, right at the one yard line, and they 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 hesitated enough, so somebody came in and took it out from underneath them. Right. So we uh, then we started looking for property, 
and right across the street with this 4,000 acres that this developer was in the same, his development business was tough back then. And this, these people weren't in bankruptcy, but they hadn't paid interest to their bank in New York for two or three years. So I cut a deal with them to buy 400 acres. I think it's 406 acres from them for a dollar. They had 4,000 acres. And I convinced them they'd seen the tournament run over at the TPC at the Sawgrass. I said, if we can bring the tournament over here and have the same thing, the property value, your value, your other 3,000 acres you got less, we'll double or triple as soon as we build our golf course. And they and they agreed to that. Interesting. Um, they knew the value of a golf course because in the 4,000 acres, they had a little 18-hole golf course that they sold property around, and they, and they knew that they could sell property on a golf course a hell of a lot for a lot more than they could out in the boonies. Sure. So, I mean, when you frame it like that in the full pitch and how their property values would be impacted by bringing this golf course, the, the purchase of the land for $1 starts to make a lot more sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they, we made a deal with them to buy the property and to build our own golf course. And literally before we got our golf course half built, the big developer who had bought Sawgrass came across the street from where they were to us and bought from our developer all the property around the TPC from him. <clears throat> and he got enough money for that property to pay off his loan in the New York banks and to and to get a, have a million and a half dollars in his pocket. Wow. And still had 2,000 acres left to develop. And it was all happened within a year. Wow. So he got for the dollar that we got for a property of 4,000, uh, 400 acres, he got his property was tripled in value, and he got that money within a year. Unbelievable. Should, they should have been paying you, not, you know, they're yeah. lucky that you paid them a dollar. Right. <laughs> they should have paid us to take it instead of, no, we have to pay them a, we have to pay them a dollar. Right. <clears throat> well, I got, I got, I got, you know, we paid him a dollar, but I, I gave him a check and took the check back so we could frame it. So he never really got his dollar. <laughs> he never got to cash it. So uh, that, that uh, it's, that's a fantastic background, and so that and now that that golf course obviously is is TPC Sawgrass. But so so but let's talk a little bit about the now that you have the property, you know the the concept of you know how how we're going to do this, and and you know in the book you talk a little bit about stadium golf and the concepts you had to stay you know to to, to build this to to build the amphitheaters. But in the book, Adam talks a little bit about how you your relationship with a, a well-known golf course architect in this area, Ed Alt, and how you and him would kind of talk a lot about, and he had some kind of out-of-the-box ideas on, on what how, how he thought the future of golf would look like, and and what was, I'm just curious. Well, what that was, yeah, that's pretty interesting. What what happened was, is that when I, when I was now going to build this golf course, what happened was, back in the early 60s, while I was still playing amateur, Eddie Alt and I were <clears throat> were put brought together on a potential golf course on the eastern shore of Maryland, across the across the the, the across the Chesapeake Bay, 
in, in but before you got to the beaches with okay. a farmland. So we 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 did put the plan together, and it never was built. But as we were working together on 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 the golf, this was a dead flat piece of property. At the same time, I I'd gone to a couple of golf tournaments to watch a golf tournament, and it was clear to me that a spectator had to be really want to watch golf to go to a golf tournament because the biggest seller, <clears throat> my biggest seller today might be beer, but the biggest seller back then was a periscope so that they could actually look over buddy's head to see golf. Sure. And so we talked about that and I said, you know, there's got to be a better way. I said, Eddie, we can build a golf course. Isn't it possible to build a golf course in all the lower areas? And, and so that when, if you're using it for a tournament, that the spectators are above the playing areas and, and really create through the development of the holes, stadiums around everything. He said, oh, yeah, we can do that. It's pretty easy. Years ago, you couldn't do that because you couldn't move that much earth. But today, with the earth moving equipment, you can do anything like that. Sure. So <clears throat> I said, well, what? <laughs> I said, you know, the USGA ought to do that for the U.S. Open. I was I watched the U.S. Open and Congressional. You couldn't see anything. So we developed a, a plan, and he did all the all the uh, drawings and everything. And I called Joe Dye in New York. This is early '60s, mm. and I asked Joe Dye if we could come and visit. Which we he said sure. So I brought Eddie all up there. We sat down with Joe Dye at the USGA and showed him, and and told him conceptually. I said, Joe, what you ought to do is you ought to build five or six golf courses around the United States where you want to hold your tournaments in the biggest communities and build stadium golf courses where people can really see golf. And at the same time, they were developing their their agronomy program, the USGA Agronomy Services. And I said, and you could then have your own golf course that you controlled in every climate in the United States where you could do experimentation for, for your agronomy services. And it would serve the purpose there. You'd own the golf courses. You'd hold the U.S. Open and all your championships at your own places. And he thought the idea was sounded great, but he wasn't interested, <laughs> basically. Just so shot it down. Yeah, we, we flew back to Washington, put it in the, put it in the drawer, and, and that was it. It was, it was dead. When I had the chance to build this golf course, that what happened back then was came right up in my mind. Let's build the first stadium golf course. Let's show them. Got so it. that's how that's how that concept came to be between Eddie Alt and I. Was there something? And I, I'm asking this. I had I, I had one of Alt's Ed Alt's associates, Tom Clark, as well as his son Brian Alt, both on this show. In the, in the in the course of the last couple of months, but one of the things I'm just curious to, to ask you, sir, if you remember, one of the things that Tom Clark mentioned was Eddie always thought he was going to get the sawgrass job, and and was was maybe you know in hindsight, I, I don't think anyone would 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 confuse you know Ed Alt's maybe golf course design talents with Pete Dye. Pete Dye is considered you know one of the one of if not you know in the conversation for the best architects of all time. 
but was do do you remember anything there? Like, were there hard feelings? Did he think he was going to get the job? Well, there might have been hard feelings, but it certainly wasn't on my side because I had very little contact with them at that time. As this started out, I picked I picked Pete Dye because there wasn't one player who ever played Harbor Town that didn't think it was the neatest golf course they ever played. And I, I thought it was a, a wonderful golf course. We had a similar piece of ground at, that the it's TPC was built on than they have at Harbortown. And I thought because he'd done such a fantastic job there, and I like the concept of, of a, a golf course with, with not great large greens and, and uh, moving through the trees the way he did. So, so he was chosen. He was chosen for this this first stadium course because of what he did at Harbortown. So that's why that's why I chose him. Was that was that still relatively early? I mean, he'd obviously done Harbortown, but was that still relatively early in Pete Dye's career, or was he was he was well into his career? He was well into it, but he was not he was not as renowned as he became. Sure. So, how long after? Sawgrass, bringing it back to the Washington D.C. area, did the did the the Avenel project come about? Well, we Avenel, the Avenel project was probably our third or fourth golf course that we started building after we were after TPC was so successful. One of our board members had a development company, and we. I think we did the South Florida golf course as our second facility in Fort Lauderdale, that, that down that way. And, and I think then we started on one other golf course and I started looking, being from Washington, I was, I was aware of, of the property at Avenel because I tried to do a golf course back there in the early sixties. This, big farm that was owned and I thought it was a great facility and but it was the property was was supposedly locally owned but at that particular time I was looking at it the ownership had moved offshore somewhere and they were the you know those investors had bought it just for a long-term investment mm-hmm. weren't interested in developing it so that didn't come about at the time but when we got involved in Avenel, the new owners of that property were were locally they were local people that had been local and it was going to be developed and they had a huge problem of they had a huge problem of the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission okay that they were restricted on development and the sanitary commission decided that Avenel was the only place that for the future of sanitation that they were they would they would let the developer develop a substantial portion of that property. They were very restrictive. So we got involved, I got involved with them, made a deal with them and said, hey listen, if we can work with the Sanitary Commission and get them to you know to not abandon what they want to do but restrict it so that you, you develop it can we build this golf course? And they agreed to that. 
So we went to work with our people with the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission and showed them how they could accomplish the same thing without taking all of this property and restricting it and restricting it to a small area that they only a small area, about 40 acres is all they needed. And then take that 40 acres and make sure that the golf course protected the rest of it and allowed the developer to, to probably develop twice as many units as they could under the old plan. So by, by changing that whole concept of the, of the sanitary commission needs, and still accommodating those needs, we showed the developer how he could develop, he could double his capacity for, for new homes there and still build a golf course. Sure. Oh, sure. So that's how we did that. Got it. Okay. Was there, one of the things, do, do you remember much about, you know, after Avenel opened, if you go back and, you know, if you do even nowadays, do a Google search and find old articles after it opened, the thing that stands out is players themselves didn't have the greatest feedback for the actual course itself. Do you remember much about that? Was there was there a lot? Was there tension between? Was there disappointment? Was there, you know, what what are your what are your memories there? As far as you know, I think Greg Norman famously you know said some some something terrible about the ninth par three and and that sort of thing. But I, I, what 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 are your memories there as far as the, the players' feedback on the actual course? Most of those. I'm not sure that we built any golf course that some players didn't criticize. Sure. Most of the criticism we play came from golfers who also were architects. <laughs> okay. Right. Who also were building golf courses. Sure. So, you know, it's it's uh, just a just a way of life. You know, you have to find a way of 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 smoothing that over, of changing things. You know, for instance, the, the first TPC, we had a huge negative reaction the first year the TPC was played. And we we didn't ignore the reaction because many of the things the player said were correct. It wasn't perfect. Right, sure. And we were flexible enough to modify because the players usually don't criticize something just to criticize it, they criticize it because they may, it may not quite be right the first time you do it. Sure, sure, so, sure. so we have almost every golf course we've built have been modified, and that doesn't happen with a golf course that you don't play a tournament on. So you don't hear that except on our golf courses. Jack Nicholas has modified Muirfield 10 times Did to accommodate what players say and what he says about it and what he wishes he'd done when he did it originally. Did you have any happens on every one of them? Sure. And that, that's interesting that that the angle I'm not sure I thought of that that some of the players are actually starting their own golf course design businesses by so by being critical of what they're playing, it's almost an effect like them trying to build their own brand of this is my opinion, this is how I, you know, how I would do things differently for for their own business. That's interesting. When 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 Avenel did their renovation, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 2007, I think it was, did you get a call? Did you have, were you, did you have input on that? Did you, were you involved in that process at all? No, I wasn't. I wasn't involved in that. Were you, was, were, were you, were you happy with that? I, I think Avenel has been, has been improved a great deal 
from the first original. In the same way that the stadium course here at Sawgrass has been modified and is better today than when it started. Every modification has improved it. And so you also, there's, a, there's another course. You got into uh, golf course design a bit yourself as well in your, in your later years. There's a, a course that, unfortunately, another one that is not, not open anymore, but I, I, I only got a chance to play it a couple times, but in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Cannon Ridge. Yeah, it was, it, it was, uh, Cannon Ridge was, a, was a, I got involved with it with Bobby Weed and, and I, I enjoyed doing that. It was a pretty nice golf course, I thought. We, we were restricted in the amount of money we could spend on it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, an unlimited budget. It was a pretty difficult piece of property to work on the golf course. So unless you spent a lot more money altering the, the problems of, of the terrain in the first place, which we didn't do because money wasn't available to do that, I thought it turned out to be a pretty nice golf course. I thought it was as well. That, that must be, I've asked this to some other golf course architects I've had on the show that it just, it just must be, you know, painful a bit when you, when you, you put, you know, years into a golf course design and then, you know, for, for reasons totally outside anybody's control other than the developer economics that the course is closed. Yeah, that, that happens. And it, it, it so happened that that golf course was, came into play about the time that, that that the rounds of golf were were going down, so it 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 was it was started unfortunately the wrong time sure. came into play at the wrong time, and you know the its long term value was diminished because of the market in golf. Yeah. That hasn't changed. The market in golf have been going down, down, down until COVID. Yeah, the, the irony, the silver and more golf. Probably, um, probably the game of golf, the industry of golf is the only industry that helped that's been helped by COVID. Here's a topic, and maybe this is the last broad topic I want to hit on with you. But going back to your commissioner days, there's there's uh, a big thing in golf right now, like in the last, really, I guess over the last year, but it's really heated up in the last few weeks about these alternate golf leagues one of them was the, the pgl greg norman's involved like the saudi league where these alternative leagues competitive leagues to the pga tour and one of the big pieces in a lot of these tours or these proposals is essentially more guaranteed money to the stars of the league with the argument being you know tv viewership people are really tuning in for the stars and on tournaments where there's you know there's not the top 10 or 15 players viewership goes way down and as i've, I've been following some of these stories i want to kind of get your opinion on it can you talk about that a little bit the first part of what you said <laughs> not the first time this has happened yeah uh it happened while i was commissioner it happened while tim pincham was commissioner it's happening now it happened in it happened in tennis many years ago and the 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 problem with the premise is that if you're saying that if what you said is correct and what you said was because the stars, those, those few, those very few at the top, superstars at the top, 
are the ones that carrying everybody, so they should get guaranteed money. The fact of the matter is that the television ratings in golf are a minor part of the value of golf. A, and, and I'll give you an example. If today, if somebody wants to be a, a title sponsor of a golf tournament and they have to pay $15 million, okay? Sure. Yep. It's, it, it probably ranges between 10 and $15 million of what, what somebody has to pay. Okay. Return. The value that that company gets for its $15 million, because of the things that we discussed earlier, that their title sponsor is, is in every newspaper in the country, at every telecast, local telecast, that it, it's been evaluated. It's been evaluated uh, by professionally evaluated that a company that spends $15 million for a golf tournament, if they're just a U.S. company, not international, uh, is probably worth something in the 30 to $35 million value. They get $35 million of value for 15, regardless of whether regardless of whether it gets a two and a half rating on television or a four and a half rating or a six rating, the ratings are a minor part of the value that a title sponsor gets. Where does all that other rating? That's I, why we don't, we don't lose very many sponsors, even though it's a low rating, even though, even though, you know, for years, even though when, when Jack Nicholas didn't show up to play, we got tournaments that Jack Nicholas never played in that were successful. Never played in. Yeah. Never teed it up. His whole career. Is part of that, I mean, can you can you elaborate a little bit on for, for a layman and, retail? And today, and because because of the of what we're doing now, yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. What we're doing now and the and the technology, it's even more valuable sure. than it was then when we made when we made this system work. And if you're an international company because of our international television rights and the, and the, and the ability of the social media, it's probably worth $60 million for 15 that you're paying. Right. So a star that says, gee whiz, if I don't play, you're going to have an unsuccessful event. He's just wrong. Okay. It's not that we don't need him. It's not that we don't love him. It's not that he doesn't make a contribution, but he is not critical to the success of a golf tournament because time and time again, they don't show up. And right. guess what? The tournament's still there, still successful. The title sponsor's still happy and it's still played next year, even though these guys pick and choose where the hell they want to play. Sure. Well, well that, let me, uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a terrific response. Do you see, you know, I, I imagine you're, you still follow all of this very closely. You still, do you still watch, you know, the tournaments on weekends? Do you watch PJ? Oh, yeah, I watch all, I, I watch golf every time I can. Do you have just, just, you know, do you think, how do you think, you know, the, 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 we're in 2021 golf, the, the purses are through the roof. Like you said, the value of these tournaments are through the roof. The television contracts are through the roof. Your tenure has so much to do with that, but you know, do, are there ways that you feel that the tour could be better that that watching golf from a maybe not from a value perspective from a sponsor, but from 
golf fans or just just the game itself how it how it could improve or do you think it's in a great spot i think it's i think it's in a great spot i think it's in a great and i think they'll find over time different ways of doing things and and doing it better but today i think golf is in an absolutely terrific spot and the other thing that i think people ought to think about is uh, if somebody's going to create a new tour mm-hmm. and they're going to invest a billion dollars to do it don't you think that that person who's putting up that money wants to get a return on his investment and get his money back ultimately the answer is yes of course if you stick with the tour that 100% of all the net that we're able to make goes to the players. We don't have another investor out of here we got to share that with. Don't you think they're better off sticking with the tour? Yeah, that makes sense. And, and not only that, the tour over the last 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years, has made it possible for them to be where they are today. Mm-hmm. We've created all of the tools that all they have to do is to be good enough and to work hard enough to be successful. So we have taken them from uh, amateur golf, provided the system for them to grow, and then when they get too old to play and compete on a regular tour, we got a place for them to play on the senior tour. And they're making some pretty good money up there too. And making pretty good money right there, too. So I would hope that they would think through. And I think I think some players have thought it through. And they have expressed the value they think the tour has brought to, get to the game of golf and to them personally. And they may owe us something. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, it's, it's not as if these guys who are thinking about maybe doing this aren't well off. And haven't made a huge amount of money. And I would hope that they would think about the volunteers. That without the volunteers, they wouldn't be here. Without the corporate sponsors who get additional benefits because of what they do for their communities that they're in. And the, and the, and the dollars that they contribute to charity aren't of great, greater value than them just padding their pocketbook and making it bigger. I think those things are more important. I think that's fair. Well, listen. Why, why don't we? We'll, we'll we'll start to wrap it up there. We. I feel I. I, I could ask you so many questions. I, I certainly. Anybody listening to this, go read the the the, the golf driving force. It's a it's a fascinating walk through. It's kind of like this podcast times a thousand, where, where it just goes into the detail of of really your entire career, but really focuses on how much the impact that you had uh, as commissioner on the tour, which was which was arguably more. That any commissioners had on any any sport, you're probably you're certainly in that conversation. Let me ask you this: at, at 83 years young, are you still getting out there and, and, and playing ever? I try to play just once a day. <laughs> that doesn't sound too bad. And do you get to play a TPC Sawgrass much? I I don't play it that often. It's pretty busy. A lot of folks from out of town like to come and play, so <laughs> I've got another place a little closer to home that I can get on a little easier. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, all right, Mr. Beeman, this has been an absolute pr- pleasure. Thank you so much for, for answering all my questions and, and coming on and, and telling us about your 
your career and life and, 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 and as well as it pertains to the, to the DC area. I think it's, it's probably inarguable that you are the most prominent figure in this sport to ever come out of this region. So thank you. Well, thank you, Alex. I enjoyed it. Interesting to reminisce about old times, but it was uh, the transition from, from just running tournaments and bringing officials there to, to call balls and strikes to, to being able to create a brand and, and to uh, accomplish, you know, the tours raised over $3 billion for charity in this period of time through the efforts of, of the organization and, and certainly the efforts of the volunteers that we need locally to run tournaments. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really close-knit business opportunity that involves the community and service to the community and a great competitive sport that I believe means uh, a great deal more. And, and, and I've often, Alex, I've been, I've been asked often what, what's the thing that I'm probably uh, most proud of in the, my tenure as commissioner. Okay. And, and I've said it time and time again, and I'll say it this last time. We were able to take golf as a minor sport a, a, and, and develop into a, to a major sport in big time money. But we were able to do it without sacrificing what golf stands for. Golf is, and golfers, and you see it every day on television if you're watching golf, they respect the game, they respect the rules, they respect the officials, and they respect their fellow competitors. And I don't think you see that every day in every other sport. So we were able to bring golf into the, what I call big money sports and still keep our core values. And that's the thing that I'm most proud of. And, that, and that's, that's worthy of being proud of. That's a heck of an accomplishment. You know, there's still, there's still a lot of people out there that, that are outside of the world of golf that kind of don't understand, you know, why people love it so much and, and why it's on, you know, if, if you're not a golfer and you turn on the TV on Saturday or Sunday, it's, it's, sometimes it seems like it's on every channel. I don't see in any other sport, everybody who comes to the 18th green is fully respectful I don't have a good golf game, but I don't really care. I'm a, I'm a regular dude living in D.C., and I want to know about D.C.-centric golf stuff. If you can tell me something that I don't already know, then that is great for me. I don't want the regular stuff. I want exciting stuff. I want different stuff. I want stuff I can't hear elsewhere, but I want it to be about D.C. golf.